0: All right, if you would turn to Daniel chapter 6 as we continue our journey through the book of Daniel, Um, a couple of things just to kind of catch us up. This will be the end of the narrative portion of Daniel. So the first six chapters are essentially a package, and then chapters 7 through 9 are a package, and then chapters 10 through 12 are essentially a, a package, and so it's important that as you read the book that you recognize that, that those things are connected in that way. And so this is going to finish the story, and then next week we'll pick up on the stuff that you guys are probably most excited about and will probably be most let down about, uh, which is the prophecy stuff. But the thing that you've got to remember with the book of Daniel is it's not about as much about what is prophesied that will happen as much as it is revealing what has been prophesied that is already happening which is evidence of God's sovereignty and faithfulness. So if you don't, if you miss that, then you miss one of the main points and the main uh, reasons that the book of Daniel was written is that it is evidencing that God has done what he said he would do already, even though his people are in the midst of exile. And as we said, the Lord is willing for his name for a season to appear to be tarnished if it is for the redemption of his people. And he shows that most of all in the person of Jesus Christ that he would let the king of the world be crucified and for a few days for all of darkness and evil to think they had won. He's okay with them thinking that for a brief time because he knows who's ultimately in control and it's really important that we know that, right? So as we look at Daniel... We also need to recognize that this is occurring probably about 65 years after the opening of the book. And if you remember, when Daniel goes into exile, he's a teenager. So this, this story, Daniel in the lion's den, the story we're very familiar with from Sunday school, uh, the pictures usually get it wrong. Most of the time, and in our picture gets it wrong. Uh, this was the only decent art there was. Yes, it is an icon. No, I don't support icons for worship. Um, uh, so yes, this is Eastern Orthodox uh, in its presentation, but not a not a condemnation or agreement to. Okay, enough. Um, and so, so he's he's essentially in his in his eighties when he's thrown into the lion's den. And a lot of times we miss that. And this is this is actually picking up where where the story of Belshazzar and his failings as king. It's picking up on the tail end of that. This is the next. Kingdom that will come to power. These are not Babylonians. These are the Medo-Persians. And so what we're going to see is that kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. Kings rise and kings fall. And yet, the word of the Lord endures forever. And that is a very important thing for us to remember, uh, especially during our own season in this country. So this is occurring about 538 B.C., and uh, this will bring to an end... The actual story portion of the book of Daniel. So keep that in mind. As we start, I want to ask you a question. I think it's a very important question. And it's a question I think we all need to wrestle with because at some point or other, you are going to wrestle with this question. And the question is, what do you expect in return for your obedience? What do you expect in return for your obedience? Now, usually we wrestle with a question like this. We are given some bad news. We are, we are confronted with some sort of illness. We are confronted with some sort of failure that is not our fault. And what do we say? Lord, why me? What have I done to deserve this? Right? What have I done to deserve this? Or if we're, if we're a bit more arrogant and honest, we'll say, Given all that I've done for you, why is this happening to me? Which, by the way, is a very honest question. The psalmist ask it, so please hear me say this. I don't think God is mad at you for asking the question. In fact, that's a great place to start. Now he's got something he can work with. Too much of what we do is try to look like we're better than we are instead of actually being honest about where we are and who we are and who God is so that we can actually get somewhere. If we'd cut the pretense and be honest, we would actually be able to make some progress in a way that would be, would be sanctifying to us and glorifying to Him. Remember, the antithesis of faith is not doubt. It's not questioning. It's pride. It always has been and it always will be. It is arrogance. It is what set in motion the fall. It is what is the whole source of our struggle with the principalities and powers of darkness, it is pride. It is our brokenness, isn't it? And so we have to, to kind of ask, what do we expect? Now think, put yourself in Daniel's shoes. Just think about all that he's had to endure. We only get a small portion of his life story in the first six chapters, right? We don't, we don't get, there's, there's, there's great decades of Daniel's life that we have nothing, no coverage on. So day in and day out, he was enduring in exile and knew he was going to be there for 70 years because the prophet Ezekiel had told him so, and God had made it clear. And he's probably not coming home. Think about this. He's near the end of the 70 years. He's been in exile for 65 years at least. And it's getting toward the end where it might be that they could go home. And all of a sudden, this situation comes up in which he is going to be cast into the lion's den. Think about that. He's come so far. He's done so much. He's been obedient. He's prayed three times a day. Couldn't Daniel say, why me, Lord? What did I do? And the Lord would say, Daniel, that's actually a bad question. That's a bad question. We ask a lot of bad questions, and that's one of them. And so what we should expect in return for our obedience is God's glory. That's what we should expect, is that God would be glorified, that the attention would be given to him and not to us. And just so you know, I wrestle with that something awful. I'm chief among you in wanting for my obedience to actually put a hedge of protection around me. I want for my good deeds to keep whatever diagnosis at bay. I don't want for anything to happen to my wife. I don't want for anything to happen to my house or my children. I hope that my obedience somehow keeps my 2000 Impala running. I don't think it's going to work. It's just not. But that's how we think, isn't it? So, so keep in mind that the, the, there's a great gravity in this story that supersedes kind of the Sunday school Version of it that we, we need to recognize. Daniel's coming to the end and he's seen so much and he's done so much and for this to happen, you've got to understand would be like a thunderclap for him and in his, in his heart and his mind. So if you would turn with me to the text, we'll read the first nine verses <clears throat> and we'll look at Daniel's work ethic which turns out to be a means of glorifying God in the world. Listen to God's word. Then the president and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could not find any ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, "O oh, king Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O oh, king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O oh, king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed." according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. So what we see here is actually a, a, um, an evidence of the sovereignty and faithfulness of God. Remember, what did Belshazzar offer to Daniel? What did he say? Hey, if you can read the writing that was on the wall, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to get you like a sick purple suit right, and some bling, and we're going we're gonna to set you up. You're going to be the, the lead guy, right? And what did Daniel say to him? Keep it. I don't need all that. And that can sound like Daniel may have been being arrogant, right? It can kind of seem like, what are you doing? And what he's saying to him is, I don't want you thinking that what you do influences what I'm about to tell you. I'm going to tell you only what God has said. And I don't want to be in any way, shape, or form for anybody to think that I've done it to get what you're offering. Right? That's actually a humility issue because that is to risk his life. You've got to understand for him to do that puts him at risk for that man to lop his head off. And so, Belshazzar offers him that which Belshazzar can't give because that very night, what happens to him? The entire kingdom falls, not just Belshazzar, all of Babylon now becomes exiles in their own country. The Medes and the Persians take over, and King Darius is the next king. Now, there's a lot of, for those of you who read on the scholarly stuff, there's a lot of... Uh, Concern about exactly who King Darius is. I'm not going to spend our time on that. Uh, I think if if you want to read, you want to study on that, that's for you to do, and we can talk about another place and time. I don't think it does anything to the story, actually. So King Darius gives Daniel what Belshazzar had promised. Do you notice that? He's one of the top three guys in the kingdom. How did Darius know that Daniel was a a worthy guy to put in his his cabinet, a Jew an exile from Judah. And not only did he put him as the top three, Daniel's work ethic was such that he stood out and he said, I'm going to make you in charge of everything. Now, lest you think that King Darius is doing this purely for good motives, why was he so impressed with Daniel? Because he suffered no loss. See, Daniel made sure that every penny that was King Darius's, every, every jot and tittle was where it should be so that King Darius would receive all that he was due. And King Darius said, now that's a man. That's a man I want running things. I'm impressed by that because it benefits me. But Daniel was not concerned with what King Darius thought. Daniel was working. His work ethic was for the glory of the Lord because he did not know when and where it would be necessary. Now, this is a a difficult part of the story and can be a bit paradoxical because it can sound like I'm saying, hey, if you'll just work a certain way and have a certain work ethic, then you will succeed. But what we see is that it actually draws fire on Daniel. He upsets everybody around him. I've experienced this. Um, There was a season in which I worked for uh, an airline that I won't name necessarily, um, and it was a summer job, um, and I was, I, I was uh, desperate for a job. I'd been laid off from where I was working. I was in college at the time. I had taken a temp job, which was terrible, by the way, where I was, uh, this pineapple company had gone out of business. And, and my job for 10 straight hours was to peel off the old label and glue a new one on as if this new pineapple company had just kind of taking it over, right? So for 10 hours, I'm standing there, rip the label, hot glue gun, put the label on. And I'm trying to talk to the people around me because 10 hours of doing that is just flat boring. And so as I got to talking to people, I've got a little, maybe this this reference will mean something to some of you, I've got a little Woodward and Bernstein in me, right? I'm investigative, I can't help it. I I, I wanted to, to be Woodward and Bernstein. I wanted to uncover corruption and do all this kind of crazy stuff. So unwittingly, as I'm talking to him, I realize we are all tempts, which is against the law. And I didn't make an issue out of it. I was just like, oh, that's fascinating. Well, the, 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 the uh, leaders came to me and they said, you seem a little too bright for a job like this. <laughs> you seem like you've got another motive. And I was like, I really don't. I'm just trying to survive. Well... I should have shut up. Well, that led to another job uh, at this airline, right? And so the first night, I'm down on the mail dock, and I'm working because my granddad had taught me, when you work, son, you work hard. You, 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 never, you, you always do the best that you can. He was, he was in the group of Marines that hit, hit the sands of Iwo Jima. So for him, you, you did what you were supposed to do, so I'm out there just busting it. And they, they affectionately called me summer help. And this is what they would say. You know, some are help, some aren't. And they were like, hey, man, you're you're down here busting it, and you're ruining our gig. You're making us look bad. This ain't how we do what we do down here at the dock. we got to string this thing out all night long so they don't find other stuff for us to do. So why don't you sit over there and shut your mouth and stay out of the way and know this. You're not coming back after this summer. You don't get it. I was like, well, welcome to the show, kids. <laughs> you know, you got to learn hard sometimes. So there's, there's a sense in which you can do all that you think is best. You can, you can be as obedient as you want to be. You can, you can glorify the Lord in all you do. And what is actually going to happen is you're going to be persecuted. You need to know that. Now, just so you don't think that that's not a New Testament possibility, here is why we read... The assurance of pardon that we read. I'm sure some of you were thinking, how in the world is that an assurance of pardon? Well, it is. Did you hear what he said? You are not greater than your master. And to actually be persecuted for his name's sake is to be numbered with him. And in that, as you survive it, you will be saved. That is your assurance. Your assurance is that when you are being persecuted, for Christ's sake, your master, of whom you are not greater, then you know, you have some knowing that in fact, God is with you and that he loves you and that it is not in vain that you're being persecuted and that it is not the end of the story. Continue to do what you're called to do in his name regardless of what comes because in the end, What is most important is that he is glorified, and that will be what brings you your greatest joy and actually protects you eternally. So we do what we do, work-wise, and this is also very important for you as students. How many of you students uh, have ever had, now if you're homeschooled, do not raise your hand, this is a trap, have had a bad teacher? right? You've had to endure a, just a terrible situation where this teacher, just for whatever reason, they've got it in for you, or they just, they don't like the way you look. They don't like the way you carry yourself. They don't like the way you answer questions. They just, something just is not right. Or they should have retired five years earlier. But whatever the reason may be, you will, if you go to school long enough, I guarantee you find yourself in a circumstance It is going to be difficult, and you need to be able to endure it to the glory of the Lord. And you don't always need to escape it. One of the very difficult things that we've dealt with with my daughter is she thinks the solution for everything is quit and start over and go do something else. Well, that's not the solution for everything. You can't grow like that. Sometimes you've got to face it and deal with it and recognize it for the sanctifying thing that it is. Because we have one of the greatest opportunities in the midst of being persecuted to glorify the Lord that you do not have under other circumstances. Nobody cares what you think about God when everything's going well. In fact, it is in the midst of diversity that you have such a beautiful opportunity. In fact, some of the greatest opportunities I've had in the work, working world when I was a manager was when I messed up big time, right? Got sideways with somebody and smarted off. I know it's hard to believe, but I did and would have to say I'm sorry and go back and work through those things. And it was in those moments that actually that, 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 that our relationship was deepened and that the glory of the gospel was most on display, even when I felt like the worst person in the world. because I. I hate myself. Like I said, I'm a radical perfectionist who's never done anything perfect. You'd think I'd give up on it at some point. So here we see Daniel is using his work ethic to glorify the Lord. And many of you would say, wait a second, now if you you think about this, if he's actually ensuring that King Darius suffers no loss, I don't know if you know anything about Medo-Persian politics and taxation. But chances are, Many of us wouldn't have agreed with it, just like we don't agree with some of the current republic's means and ways. And yet what Daniel did was recognize where he was, who he was, and who he was truly serving. And he didn't start an alternative party, and he didn't start, he didn't go and and cause a bunch of problems. Now you may say, well, that's just Daniel. Yeah, but it's a pretty significant book in the Bible. And I think there's something for us to learn in that, that it is not for us to take up that which God has not taken up. And so, what we see here is Daniel continuing to, to found himself on the sovereignty and the faithfulness of his God, not in his own deeds. Now listen at what Ian DeGuid says about this. He says, whatever gifts and abilities we have, whatever successes we may meet with in life, all of them are ultimately the work of the one who gave us those gifts and opportunities, along with the diligence and perseverance to pursue them. We are simply God's servants doing the work he has assigned to us. He deserves all the praise and adoration. The biblical word for this attitude is humility, the perspective that sees our own size rightly in comparison to the surpassing greatness of God. Daniel did not think himself too big to endure what the Lord, who was sovereign and faithful, had given to him. So when the satraps go to the king, notice what they don't do, by the way. They don't mention Daniel at all, do they? No, they're, they're creating what we call the horns of a dilemma. Because they know that Daniel is valuable to Darius. And so what they do is first appeal to his ego and say, how about... How about this? For 30 days, no one can appeal to any God or man, but you, O king, live forever, right? Live forever, or at least until we are in power. And so they get him to sign this edict, and so Darius, again, his hands aren't clean here. He's like, sounds like a great idea. Because remember, he's new in this kingdom, and getting everyone to appeal to him for 30 days makes a lot of sense. It allows him to get to know the people, and for the people to get to know that he, like Nebuchadnezzar, is going to give you everything you need. So this edict makes a lot of political sense in the current climate for him. And so the trap is set set by a people who couldn't care less about King Darius. They care only for themselves. It looks a lot like, if you think about it, Genesis 4. See, the way to, because to, again, do you think the satraps and the presidents, do you think they intend to do and work in the same way that Daniel did? The, the, if they did, then Daniel wouldn't be in the position he's in. See, what they did caused the king to suffer loss. And they figured, well, if you just get rid of Daniel, then the king's got to choose us, right? In the same way that Cain slew Abel. Instead of actually making his sacrifice better, he's like, well, I'll just get rid of his, and then you got nothing to choose from but what I give you. So as if God were some sort of silly, small thing. So they are treating Darius in much the same way. But it's important for us to ask the question. Again, I think it's good to ask questions and, because most of us, if we're honest, we're just getting by day to day we're just surviving for the most part, which is not what Christ died for you to do. That is not the abundant life. But I recognize and struggle with the same thing. I, I oftentimes describe my own life, and I don't even have kids at the house anymore, that it feels like I'm in the middle of a swiftly flowing stream, and I'm trying to make a sandcastle. <laughs> it's, just, it's just this impossibility, it feels like, right? But some of that is because I don't think we ask good questions, and I don't think we make good decisions to try to frame our circumstance. So the question that I have for you is, What does your work ethic evidence about what you believe about God's sovereignty and faithfulness, and your calling and your vocation? Right, your work ethic, in, in fact, again, I've said this many times, more people are watching you than you know. And they have have opinions about you based on what you do. And again, this was illustrated to me when my boss was fired or essentially told you can find another job or be fired. It's kind of all the same if you ask me. And everybody in the building had an opinion about him. It was kind of shocking actually. People who he had no interaction with whatsoever. They had strong opinions about him because of his work ethic. So you need to know That you are being watched far more than you have ever realized. And that's actually a good thing because it's an opportunity for you to glorify God in all that you do, even with how you work. Remember, nobody cares what you say you believe. They look at your life so they can discover what you really believe. For you to give all this verbiage about being blessed and going to church and you got to hink these fish in your car as you're cutting people off and flipping them off and all that fun stuff that we do as humans. Nobody cares about all of the, 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 the sound and fury that signifies nothing. What they want to see, what they're desperate for at core is, is there something worth living for? Is there something better in this life? Is there something that can make meaning out of all of this nothingness? And you, you and I have a phenomenal opportunity with how we just do day in and day out life to display the glory of God as Daniel has done here. Now, turn back to the text. Let's look at verses 10 through 18. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, "'O king!' Did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall he be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king. Or the injunction that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. And the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his Lord's that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. And the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep Fled from him. Now notice Daniel's response at the signing of this injunction. What does he do? He goes right home and does what he's been doing. He prays just as it was recommended by Solomon in 1 Kings 8, 46 through 53. See, he's fulfilling in a sense, or, or participating in the fulfillment of, a, of the answer to a prayer that King Solomon prayed way back when the temple was being dedicated. And essentially what Solomon said was, when the people sin against you, Lord, and they go into exile, if they turn toward you, turn, turn toward the temple and pray that you, you would answer their prayer. So Daniel knows that, and what has he been doing? See, this isn't, he's not, he's not responding to a crisis. He's doing what he always has done. And I've said this many times. You have no idea How you not praying today, you not engaging in Scripture today or the last three weeks or four weeks or five weeks or six months or a year, how that sets you up for failure when something comes. You're not prepared to deal with it because you're in crisis management and you're trying to demand of a God you haven't talked to in who knows how long that he suddenly step to your will when you have not been stepping to his. See, Daniel was practiced. How many of us, if, uh, whomever the next president is going to be, comes and says, hey, listen, you all can keep your tax-exempt status as a church, which is pretty meaningful, by the way, given what we give. You can keep your tax-exempt status if you agree not to worship for 30 days. And you agree not to pray or read your Bible. For some of us, would that be all that hard? <laughs> yeah, shooting fish in a barrel, already got you. Can we go on back pay alone? Right? For some of us, this wouldn't be all that hard. This injunction would pass in 30 days, and we'd do what we've always done. See, what this does is expose who we are. And we need to recognize that, that Daniel was always praying. He didn't go and just poke his eye. Finger in the eye of the king, he said, no, you are not my king. You are not the one who determines. Even though I will make sure you suffer no loss, I will not bow to you in this. And the satraps knew exactly where they'd find him because he'd been there. Right? He'd been there. And so they catch him, just as they thought he would, three times a day, for crying out loud. And they go to the king and notice what they don't do. Notice what they don't start with. Very important. What do they start with? Um, Can we remind you of something you signed? Can we just establish that that can't be changed? Which, by the way, any of you have read the book of Esther, it actually can be changed if the king so desires. But it could come at a cost to the king that he would lose face with his people. Now, this is a new king. You need to understand that. That plays into this. Darius wanted to save him, right? He wanted to to undo what he had signed, but he knew if he did this early into his kingship, he would lose all credibility. So he is influenced by his own concerns, and his own skin, and his own flesh. And so they hang him on the horns of the dilemma. They say, well, if it can't be changed, can we, can we point out something to you? Daniel, who, by the way, is just some Jewish exile, let's not get all that excited. Won't be that big of a loss, really. Uh, He he pays no attention to you. Now, there's a reason that they use that language because notice the attention that Daniel had paid to King Darius to make sure that he suffered no loss, and yet they were calling out his lack of attention to this edict, this injunction. Notice King Darius' response. Immediately he starts working to try to think, how can I save him? He is too valuable to my kingdom, and these fools don't care about anything. If I lose him, i got to turn things over to these guys who've already evidenced they really don't respect me. you got to understand, if I'm going to hang you on the horns of the dilemma, I don't have a whole lot of respect for you. If I'm going to paint you into a corner and leave you no room, that's just not fair. And, and guess what? The repressed district attorney in me loves doing that stuff. But that's because I love that more than I love you at times. And so Darius recognizes these folks don't care about me. So he starts trying to save Daniel, but he can't. And so he takes and throws him into the lion's den. And to show the distrust that is already afoot in the kingdom has to put his signet on the the stone that is placed in front of the den because nobody trusts anybody. Notice it says, so that nothing could happen for Daniel. Who was coming to save Daniel from the outside? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Like, who were they worried about was gonna try to save him? No, the satraps were worried the king was gonna do something. And notice the king turns to all the things that he has at his disposal and he finds no, at all, no comfort in his own means. Now, what I don't want you to miss is a parallel, which if those of you who read the, the letter for um, communion this morning, you, you, you've seen this already, but the parallels to Christ in this should not be missed. right? How Christ, who is innocent, has to suffer a kangaroo court by night, which was utterly against the law, by the way, on multiple fronts, but who cares when you ends justify the means, right? Or the means justify the ends. So he suffers the kangaroo court, He's brought before Pilate. Remember Pilate's response? I don't find any fault with this man. What is wrong with y'all? I don't want to do this. And if you remember, there was a dream that was had that was very disturbing that was brought to Pilate. It says, don't, don't mess with this man. So how can I end well? And Pilate realizes, if I don't, it's going to cause a war and we're going to have problems. And so I care more about keeping the peace and safety and security than I, than I do truth whatever, scourge him, crucify him, I wash my hands of this. So there's no way he can save him and that Jesus is crucified and he is placed in a tomb. And remember, they were worried something's gonna to happen to that body. So they put the biggest stone they could find that no man could move in front of that tomb. And so there are parallels here. The foreshadowing of the, of the coming story of Christ is very important. And we don't want to miss that in looking at this text. And so Daniel is cast into the den of lions, even though he's prayed, even though he's been obedient, even though he's done everything he's supposed to do. At 80 plus years old, he's thrown to the lions. Now, Ronald Wallace says this in a book called The Lord is King, The Message of Daniel. He says, there is no doubt That what kept Daniel when his trial came was this rigid, uninterrupted habit. He had disciplined himself to do it day by day for years. In the hour of crisis, the very momentum of the custom itself would have been enough to keep him faithful to it, even if there had been at that moment no living inspirational incentive. That's worth you reading again on your own and thinking through because this is true. Like we... Well, for some reason, uh, the the spiritual disciplines have fallen on hard times in, in evangelical culture, which is fascinating to me. I think it's a masterful move by Satan. It's brilliant to get us to turn to the means of grace and say, no, that's means of legalism. So you're telling me that having a conversational relationship with someone who loves you and sent Jesus to die for you is legalism? Do you take that position with your spouse? Your children, I I can't be talking to you every day. You'll start to think it's a habit. You'll start to expect it for crying out loud. And that's legalism. No, practicing the spiritual disciplines is actually first and foremost a confession of your weakness. Practicing spiritual disciplines is you saying, I cannot do this on my own. I don't know the way and you do. That is what ought to be at the core of our practicing of spiritual disciplines, is that confession. Now, if you use the practice of your spiritual disciplines to make yourself better than others, might I remind you that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. It's not about you using those things to set yourself apart, it is about you using those things to glorify the Lord your God in all circumstances. And you can't get mad at God who's been there for years and has offered his love and his knowledge and wisdom for years, and all of a sudden you go demanding something quick and he doesn't seem to show up. He's been there. Where you been? Where have we been? Right? So, would you have a problem giving up your spiritual disciplines if you were persecuted for them? Would it be all that hard Listen, I know I'm poking you now. I got poked in the eye by this question too, okay? I'm mad at the spirit myself. But it's true, isn't it? It's a good question, and we shouldn't recoil from it because we have failed in some way, shape, or form. What we should do is let it, let it shape us, let it take the raw material of what we have and transform us. And what does, what does how you practice the spiritual disciplines evidence about what you believe, about the value of the spiritual disciplines as means of grace. Right? I mean, it's just, it's just and it's kind of the elephant in the room for us in evangelical Christianity. It just is. Like, we, we thought we got rid of it with the whole, you know, laying the axe to the root of the tree of the accountability groups. Like, we made that into a cuss word. And so we thought we got rid of this whole issue. But it still haunts us because it was the means that God gave to us, not that man created Yes, we twisted them as we have done with everything East of Eden, but that doesn't make them not true and necessary. One of the things that we want to focus on over this next year as a church, if you remember, there's three pillars, generosity, prayer, and missionality. Generosity came fairly quick for us, um, although... September lacks a little bit in that regard, but that being said, we have shown a penchant for really caring about other people and being willing to give to that, which is fantastic. You, hopefully, you saw that in the, in the lunch that we had, and we want to continue that. We don't want to lose that, but we, we, we kind of are trying to figure out what, what ought to be focused on next, prayer or being missional. I think if you charge off trying to be missional without having a foundation of prayer, we end up looking like the folks from um, Monty Python's The Holy Grail, just running from one place to another, and then charging back over this way, right? And we we don't really have a direction, but we are rattling the sabers and making some noise. Whereas prayer ought to undergird all that we do and all that we are. So over this next year, you're going to see that a lot of the discipleship groups are going to be reading the same book. It's going to be on prayer. And we want to grow in that. We want to, we are challenging ourselves as elders and deacons. We we are looking for avenues where we can grow in this respect. Because it, it puts us in that posture of humility that nothing else does. And does that mean we don't care about being missional over the next year? Yeah, we do. But we're not going to press it as hard this year. But if you're here next year, we will. Once we have prayer firmly established. If we don't have it established, we'll just keep talking about it until we do. And so so what we see is that it's prayer that undergirded Daniel to endure this. Let's turn back to the text and see how the story ends. Then at the break of day, the king arose (coughs) and went in haste to the den of lions I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded those men who had maliciously accused Daniel be brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces, and King Darius wrote to all the peoples and nations and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for He is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and His dominion shall be to the end. Shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. This is really important. The king goes rushing just as the the disciples did when they heard that the tomb was empty. The king goes rushing to see if God had delivered Daniel. And sure enough, he had. God had sent an angel. So in essence, this has been fulfilled. The the law on this has been fulfilled. He threw Daniel into the lion's den just as he was supposed to. It's not for the king to decide what the lions do. The lions chose in the sovereignty of God and the faithfulness of God not to eat old Daniel. He probably wouldn't have been a very good meal anyway. But they didn't eat him because the angel of the Lord shut their mouths. And Daniel was found and delivered from that tomb because he was blameless. Now why was Jesus able to walk out of the tomb? Because he too was not guilty of the wages of sin, which are death. And death could not hold him any better than it could hold Daniel. And it's not that Daniel is blameless because he in and of himself is particularly righteous, but because the God who is faithful and sovereign protected him and provided him with everything he needed in order to be obedient and to be redeemed. It was God who redeemed him, not Daniel's works. And it's only when he was redeemed or delivered from death that it is proven that, in fact, he was blameless. He wasn't delivered because he was blameless. His deliverance declares him blameless. Do you see the difference? And so here we have Daniel comes out. The king celebrates, and according to Medo-Persian law, those who bear false witness must suffer the fate that they had intended for the one they bore false witness against. So guess what? Them and their families, this is, this is Medo-Persian law, get thrown in. I know this is a strange story because we hate the idea of children being killed. We hate the idea of someone else suffering for someone's sin. And yet, does your family suffer because of your sin? Does your family have to pay for the choices that you make? Right? They do. This isn't foreign to us. So it's really not as far as we recognize. Yes, we should be upset that people lost their lives, but it was according to the law under which they had yoked themselves. And so they pay in judgment, though Daniel is delivered. Something very similar will happen at the end of time when Jesus comes back, right? He'll have a sword that comes from his mouth, and judgment will be rendered. For those who are in Christ, you will be greeted as sons and daughters. For those who are not, you'll be greeted with a sword. Now, we may not like that, and no, we shouldn't actually, but it doesn't mean we get to change the story to amalgamate our neurosis. We must recognize there is a cost to all this. This isn't just some silly story that's going on. No, this is a consistent narrative, and God is so gracious to say, I tarry. Judgment, yes, is coming, but I tarry because I love you. Turn, repent, and live. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And so it's important for us that we feel the tension of the loss of life and the gaining of life. And that we not try to push all one way, right? For those of us who are like, judgment, yeah. No. Nor should we say, well, I can't deal with people being judged so everybody's gotta get in. As if you were God and could say. We have to live in that tension and part of living in that tension is how we live, right? What our work ethic is, how we love our neighbors, how we care for one another. And so the Lord has given us everything that we need in order to be able to do exactly that. That's where the means of grace really come in. That's why you should engage in daily devotional activity. Because you are always preparing for what the Lord is bringing your way, opportunity-wise. Not lifting yourself up so you can win Bible trivia at Wings and Things. Although that's not a bad thing. What's really important is how this chapter ends where it says that Daniel flourished under both King Darius and King Cyrus. Now, why would Cyrus be an important name? Well, again, this is the pointing forward to the fulfillment of prophecy. that was in Isaiah 44, 24 through 28 in which God referred to Cyrus who would come to deliver his people as his shepherd. If you know anything about the story of the people of God, when they are released from exile at the end of 70 years, it is King Cyrus who ushers the decree so that they can go and rebuild. So, this, this little phrase, the reign of Cyrus, signals to us and to Daniel that the fulfillment of the prophecy from Isaiah 44, and, and really several places in Isaiah, is coming to pass. Take heart. Take heart. It's almost over, even though Daniel won't see the end. He won't see the, the, he won't return. So my question for you is how does the future hope of deliverance from sin and death comfort you today? How does it help you live today? Because that's not just something that needs to be put on a shelf and forgotten. In fact, it's very much a part of this table. It's a huge part of this table in that it points forward to Christ's return to remind us of the hope that we have that is coming it is incredibly important that we, that we continue to base and found who we are based on that coming reality, right? Because we're not going to um, we're, we're not gonna fix it all such that Jesus doesn't need to come back, right? We're not gonna be like, all right, we're, we're good. Uh, we got kind of a new heavens, new earth thing kind of going on here. Uh, so there's no reason for you to show up and kind of divide people. So let's all just, let's all just agree to be cool. Right? No, this, this future hope, it, it should color how we vote. It should color how we think. It should color how we work. It should color how we love. It should color how we teach. It should color everything we do. It should be part of us. And for too many of us, it's something we don't even hardly think about. But for Daniel, the fulfilled prophecy was very important for what would be fulfilled, what he was promised. And for us, as we see the foreshadow of Christ in this story, It's very important for us as we approach this table today that we not see it as a cute Sunday school story. No, it's a very difficult story actually. For an 80-year-old man to be thrown into a lion's den. And for a kingdom to be in convulsions right from the start. That's difficult. So what is it we should take away from Daniel 6? One, how we work and live out our calling and vocation is, is a key means to glorifying God. You gotta think about this. You got to recognize you're being watched. Everything you post, everything you say, everything you do, somebody's watching you. I'm not. not, That wasn't a government statement, by the way. (laughs) Let's Snowden aside, uh, which is also true, probably, by the way. But even more important, your children, your spouse. Your, your friends, your neighbors, the people you work with, your, your, the students who are alongside you, you have no idea how what you do may provide something they so desperately need at some point in time. You have no idea how it might circle back around, and you'll wish you'd done it different. Second, our current spiritual disciplines affect how we respond to persecution in the future. Persecution, suffering, it, it deeply affects how we can do what we do. If you're not practicing today, chances are, when suffering hits, you're not suddenly gonna get good at it. Three, God is faithful to deliver his children who are blameless in Christ from sin and death. And you can only be blameless in Christ. You, in and of yourself, cannot work your way to blamelessness. It must be something given to you by the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so this is a really important thing. I want us to circle back around to Psalm 116. And hear it again, because this was our call to worship. And I think it's important for us as we, um, as we come to the table to hear the words. Uh, in essence, I think Daniel could have written this song. I'm not making an argument that he did, by the way, so don't get excited. Um, but, but listen at the words just yet again. And imagine if Daniel could have said them. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O oh my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. So as we come to the table this morning, what I want you to meditate on and think about is how is it that you know that you love the Lord? What have you seen him do? What has he done that lets you know that he loves you and and how has he delivered you? How has he brought you into the land of the living? I know there are many of you in here this morning who have some difficult things that you're wrestling through. And I know that you don't yet know what the other side or how this is all gonna work out. I get it. But yet, you do have a backstory. You do have places where you have seen God be good where you can say, I love the Lord because he has Heard me, and therefore I can dwell with him in the land of the living. I can go on. I can continue to pray. I can continue to practice, even though it doesn't look like it's mattered all that much right now. And this is also where the table is so nourishing to us, because it is the table that declares God's love for us, right? It's the table that says, take and eat and be nourished and know that I love you. And yes, an innocent man had to die. And yes, it was more horrible than any of us can conceive. But yes, he rose from the grave, not guilty, so that you could walk in newness of life. And so this was the intent he was giving to his disciples, because remember what we read is the assurance of pardon. You are going to be persecuted. You are going to suffer as your master suffers. Can you imagine Can you imagine seeing what they saw and hearing those words and how they would have weighed so heavy? And he knew they were going to need something to get them through. And so he said, now I want to give you something to do in remembrance of me so that you don't forget and you know I'm coming back. That my work is finished and there's a not yet element yet to come that will sustain you from now until then.